take a breath. Don't take yourself too seriously. We are here to make kids smile. We are here to help families. And just take a minute and think about the good that comes out of that. As you pursue your mission, how are you appreciating the good that comes from it? I'm Kimberly O'Donnell, and this is Accidental Fundraiser, a show from Network for Good that shares radically authentic stories from the trenches. The Santa Fe Children's Museum is based on a simple idea. Children learn by doing. The museum provides an informal environment that fosters connections among children and families and encourages active participation in the learning process through interactive exhibits and programs. Hannah Hossman, executive director, grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and spent much of her youth volunteering in the tight-knit community. Her nonprofit career began with Big Brothers Big Sisters in Miami and included organizations like United Way and the Miami Children's Museum. Throughout her career, Hannah has raised over $15 million to support children, families, and communities. So while she's no longer an accidental fundraiser, she certainly started out that way. With that in mind, let's join the conversation, beginning with her advice for new fundraisers. Don't be so hard on yourself. People that go into this field tend to be not perfectionists, but we are really hardworking. So if you last in fundraising and development in all of these areas, you tend to really work hard, you know, and you really value that. And, you know, I honestly would just say, I wish I hadn't been so hard on myself. I maybe wish I could have, would have taken a few more breaks. I worked really hard. I would work crazy hours. And I even had a child later in life because I ended up just my professional career kind of took over, which was great, mind you. I, I'm very happy with that. And I always think there's a reason for everything, but I didn't take a lot of breaks. So I think that was what I would tell people is, you know, they use that term self-care a lot these days, but there is something to it, especially when you work in this field. You, you need to take a minute and take a step back. So many of our accidental fundraisers are accidental executive directors who started a nonprofit, right? They're so passionate about their cause. They don't stop working because they feel like they have to push forward and really um, help fulfill their mission. Take those breaks. What other advice do you have for them around just being able to spread that passion out over time so that you really do have the stamina to survive as a leader in the nonprofit sector? I mean, I say this to my team now. So, so many years later, I went from a marketing assistant and now I'm an executive director. I always tell people, don't take yourself or the job too seriously. And I mean that in a, in a really truthful way. And I, I'm not saying don't take your mission seriously because I do. And I take it to heart. I wouldn't be doing it for this long. But in mentoring others through my career and working with others that are just pop, you know, just starting. I mean, I've had the development managers under me and I can see me like, I'm like, wow, that was me so many years ago. And I always say to them, take a breath. Don't take yourself too seriously. We are here to make kids smile. We are here to help families and just take a minute and think about the good that comes out of that. And just take a step, take a step back, you know, because it's really easy to get stressed. You know, I see it all the time here. And so I, I usually actually just the other day, I saw one of our team members. She looked bleak. She was walking through the hallways looking like something was wrong. She works in the programs department. And I said, could you have a minute? And I said, when you get a second, just come to my office. And I closed the door and I said, how are you doing? You know, I'm sure she thought I was going to say, 
have you figured out Wednesday's program? Because I haven't seen, you know, she just looked at me and she burst into tears and we just talked. We just talked. I said, well, you know, and you know what she said to me? She said, I feel like I can't do it all. I can't do one thing right. And I said, you're doing a lot of things right. And so we talked through it. And I think just by being that, as I think a leader is also just being human and going, you know, and this is a really, this is a hard industry to be in. It can wear you down. I mean, right now we, we are still half the staff that we were pre-COVID, you know, and so everyone's working a super amount of hours. And so that's something to think of too, is like have grace with yourself. How do you, as an executive director, as someone who's been in the fundraising space for a long time, how do you advise your staff and others around staying true to strategy? Because when we are working in a nonprofit, uh, we get into the weeds. Like it's so easy to just get mired into the day to day. I got to get this done. I got to get this done because you're so busy. How do you keep everybody, you know, thinking about strategy as well so that the larger organization can really move forward? So I will quote or give credit to my mentor at Miami Children's Museum, where I worked for probably a good 10 years and learned a great deal. The CEO would always say to me, does this support our mission? Why is this essential? You know, those questions or what makes this, does this make us essential or is this But her first question, you know, we'd have staff run in and say, oh, we just got a call from, uh, you know, and it could be a big donor and it could be a project that sounds really great. But even even so, she would say, that sounds wonderful. Is is this supporting our mission? And they'd take a step back and she'd say, come back to me when you figure out if it does, because we can't do it all and we can't be everything to everybody. So I still do that. I talk to my team and I'll say, well, that's a great idea, but, but how does that support our mission? And I say that to our board because board of directors can get, you know, board members can also take it right to another place too and come to you and say, well, we have this really good idea. And so you just have to take a step back and say, that's wonderful, but is that supporting our mission right now, you know, and what we do and how we serve the community? I just use that. That's just that one, one statement. And it seems to really help direct us and divert us back sometimes if you're going down the wrong path. That's awesome and and true. Sometimes that's all you need, right? To keep everybody focused. Oh yeah, we're like way too excited about this thing. Maybe a carnival isn't a good idea right now, you know, whatever it is, because we always hear those wacky ideas that maybe come up or something that happens and -and so-and-so wants to sell something in your lobby and then you have to take your staff back and say, okay, that's great. They want to give us 10%. But why would that support? What is this? What are they doing? You know, and how does that support our mission? Are they a good partner? And so that's kind of where I always go back. And I do give credit to my my. I've had many good mentors in my career. So I want to touch base on on some of the partners because um, at times you'll have a donor. It could be a corporate donor. It could be an individual donor that will come to you wanting something that's just more than what you're able to give, right? How do you handle those situations? And sometimes you have to fire donors, right? So how do you how do you do that? And do you have any examples to share? Going back to, to working in South Florida and and putting on eight hundred person galas. I mean, that's what I was I did for a good amount of my career. There's a lot of drive from donors, especially because the community is is also very driven by the social aspect of events. So events are a really big deal in South Florida. 
for nonprofits. You know, it's just a part of the philanthropy environment and the industry. And so I can't really think of a specific example, but there's just a lot of times when you are planning an event and the donor or the lead sponsor or the presenting sponsor wants something and it's just going outside of your parameters. It's, it's asking for too much. You know, we had a lot of exhibits that were, that were named and sponsored. You know, I think that donors and at least I can only speak from the experience I had in South Florida, but sometimes they will take advantage. And that can be, I remember, I remember hosting or throwing parties that were supposed to end at a certain point and they just kept going and you couldn't end them because the donor was there and their friends were there and everyone was having a great time. So you're there until four in the morning and you're exhausted, you know? And so where do you, where do you kind of draw that line? And that's really hard when you're younger, I think. I mean, there is something about age and sort of experience and knowing this isn't appropriate, like this isn't okay. I do remember one funny example. I had a donor that she didn't like the way the bar setup looked and already the team had left. And so she said, you move it. And so I ended up trying to move it and it was exhausting and I was doing it. And she's like, I don't like it there. Move it that way. And same donor also asked me at one point, I babysat her kids because she would bring them and there was like nowhere for them to go. And so I'd have to grab or grab, you know, someone who worked in my department and say, I'm so sorry. I know this isn't part of your other duties as a sign, but I really need you to watch so-and-so. <laughs> so you'd be like babysitting kids. Oh my goodness. Well, that is an extreme uh, donor request. But the, those come to you though. And, and in the heat of the moment, as you're having an event, it's hard to juggle all of that. Um, it, it's also the fun of it too, I would say. You know, I, you've done so many events. I've done so many events. They're, they're, they're fun, but woo, you've got to be ready for whatever is going to be thrown your way. I want to touch though for a minute on the naming side of things because I think you and I probably have some advice for our listeners that could be useful. I worked for an association where they had a library uh, and they had these wonderful artifacts and some of them had been named. And when they were named years and years ago, they were sold basically um, with donations made in perpetuity. So that name was then in perpetuity. And and any advice that I would give to an organization um, just starting out would be to really think about that and maybe have some time limits on some naming opportunities when they had their new building um, that was going up and they were redoing uh, the library and the artifacts. They had to name the library in the same name because of the original uh, donation that was made like 30, 40 years earlier earlier. Can you give some advice around that, you know, around naming opportunities? So I worked at Miami Children's Museum and then my other job was at, and I, I started there a year and a half into opening. So they had just finished a really large capital campaign to get the building opened in Miami. My other job, I opened Young at Art Museum, which was also another almost 60,000 square foot facility. So you can imagine how many naming opportunities you have. So something I learned across time was pledge agreements, you know, having in writing exactly what is promised and for how long, because if you set up a naming opportunity without anything in writing, you don't have that opportunity to re-engage them. And we did do that. So when their pledge agreement was done, like whether we said it's for 10 years and your name will be placed, but then they renew. So you actually, have t- you have a chance for them to renew their gift because I 
I don't think it should be, you know, in perpetuity. I think that there is, there should be opportunities also for others to jump in if they want to. In Miami, I remember it started out as the Carnival Cruise Line, you know, center. And it was up there. They, they placed it up and they unfortunately had some issues with funding and they needed more. And Carnival said, well, we're not, we're not going to, we made this agreement for this amount. So Adrienne Arch stepped up, who's a pretty, she's a very big donor in the community. And she said, I'll do it, but Carnival's name needs to come down. And so we watched awkwardly because you're driving over the causeway as the Carnival logo and name went down and her name went up. But you have to imagine the development person or the, you know, the agreements that had to go on in that regard with those names. Very sensitive conversations. <laughs> so sensitive. Well, here's another one. In the same building, there was a donor who had his wife passed away. And so originally it was both their names on the building. And then he started dating uh, someone and he wanted her name to come down and wanted the new person's name up. So, uh, you know, I would say, so thinking of all these, and this is a big city. So I think things do happen more often, but it can happen in a small town too. I think it doesn't really put it in writing. And put your timing in writing. So if you think that this is going to be for 10 years, if it's going to be for 20, or maybe it is in perpetuity, that's okay too. But I would say put it down in writing. I remember working with the CEO on it and it was, we had lots of opportunity to re-engage, but also go to new donors. And then there's not that uncomfortable feeling, right? Because the one donor says, I'm I'm done and this was great. And I'm so happy to be able to name this space, but I'd like to hand it off to another donor to take on the legacy or whatever that may be. I want to step in back into events because events are so fun. You have had so much experience. We have a lot of organizations who have had to pivot this year and decide in-person, virtual, hybrid. Do you have any tips to put out there for them as, as they kind of weigh that? And then we'll start there and then we'll move over to like any first time event. When I started off at Big Brothers Big Sisters, for those of you that know Dave Barry, the columnist, he was the MC. So I've done events from golf tournaments to bowling to galas, you name it. Events on cruise ships, yachts. What's your favorite type of event? Honestly, the galas are, are, are at least in Miami, were a lot of fun, I have to say, because you have the resources that you need. So you have a set budget. You have access because your donors have access sometimes to celebrities and people that you can bring into the fold. It's just a lot of fun. And so if you do it right, it's like you're the talk of the town. And so that's always a lot of fun. And you, But I will say you have to have the right team on board, the right gala committee, the right chair. If you don't have that, it can just bomb. You know, I mean, you can you can throw a great event, but if you don't have the people behind it to invite their friends and raise the money forget it. And are those the best qualities of your gala committee is having the connections and, you know, the spirit behind it and also the sponsorships? Are there, are there any other qualities that you would say are, are essential for having that right committee? So I would say, I always used to say you need your socialites and your social, but then you also need the worker bees and then the fundraisers. So you need, you need that combination, right? And you need a leader. So you need a really strong leader. And one gal I did, we had, you know, um, 
And again, he's, I see him as a mentor also, just a very strong businessman in the Miami community who's very well respected. And he stepped up and said, I'll chair this. And when he did that, it was like, it, it just made our job so much easier because he would give you a list of 20 companies and say, give them a call and said, you know, just say I called, you know, and opening those doors is amazing. He, we go to all his vendors. He, he, he opened that door, which was huge. And he said, I want all my vendors to sponsor this event because my name's on this event. And so being one of the biggest developers, he, he had a lot of access. And so, but that's so generous of him, you know, to do that for us. Having someone who's passionate about your mission, passionate about the organization, which he is, makes all the difference. And then they bring all his family, his connections, everyone into the fold. I know I digressed a little bit, but we were talking about, oh, so talking about events, you know, when I came back to, when it came to Santa Fe, this is not a gala town. I went from doing those really big events to coming in and seeing, to be honest, events that I maybe saw back in like the early nineties, really rudimentary, like things are very slow here, very different. It's not a gala town. That was an adjustment for me because I was like, well, and we can have a band and we can do this and very different sort of philosophy. Still lots of wealth and philanthropy here in Santa Fe. Lots of people retire here, but they retire here to sometimes get away from those big events and those big galas and those big things that they don't want to do here. So they, they're a lot more direct, which is nice. Actually, you can go and have coffee and they'll say, this is what I want to do. The museum was doing a gala and it did, it did fairly well for the museum and for the community pre COVID when COVID hit, obviously no one was getting together for events. And so we did a, an event called move for the museum. And it was an event that encouraged families to get outside and exercise. It was perfect because right at the time COVID had just hit, we were under complete lockdown and restrictions here. Everyone was home. There was only really grocery stores open here in Santa Fe, nothing else. I mean, the governor's really strict. So people were going outside and saying, support me. I'm going to hike five miles today. So we did it all in celebration of our 35th anniversary so we said, look, in one month, do 35 of something. If it's 35 yoga classes online, 35 jumping jacks, whatever it is, and then get people to pledge you. So we raised almost 90000 doing that. Awesome. With little overhead. <laughs> nothing. We did nothing. And, and, you know, that's, I would say, for people just starting out, think about the things that you can do that are still, you know, this was very mission-based for us because keeping kids active and families active and fit, not just physically, but mentally, because there's a lot going on and still is right now that is affecting people's mental health. We are lucky here in Santa Fe that you and in the surrounding areas, it is beautiful. We have hiking, we have outdoor space that you can just walk outside your door. So we kind of tapped into that and we said, well, this is what we're going to do. We did it for the second year and raised the same exact amount of money. So, you know, I think it's here to stay. Now our board got together and they're talking about, they want to know, well, what, what else can we do? Let's, let's think now we, they're not convinced. And I'm not either that galas are the thing to do anymore, at least here, because, you know, it's not something people crave. And so what can we do as a fundraiser that will, will really spark an interest with our donors and our community here in Santa Fe? So that's what we're doing right now is brainstorming on additional ways that we can raise money. That's great. And, you know, um, the pandemic has sort of spurred that evaluation of what organizations are doing to raise money and where they may need to 
changed, I, I don't want to use the word pivot, but really, you know, truly change direction where we can let some of those events that were not as successful or just labor intensive sunset and we can kind of lean into some new and fresh ideas. Have you done anything else as you guys have evaluated your own uh, fundraising strategy and the types of events that you do and, and you know, the campaigns that you have? We just developed a community cookbook, which was a collaboration with a local university here in New Mexico that's actually a Hispanic serving institution. And so we worked with them to develop a collaborative cookbook. It's it's adorable. And so I'm trying to launch that for end of year as a fundraiser because it's like a perfect stocking stuffer. It has recipes from people all over the community. So doesn't have to all be New Mexican cooking, although it's my favorite, but You'll have from the enchiladas in there and the bizcochitos, which here in New Mexico is our state cookie, but you make it in the Orno, which is a traditional adobe mud oven that was brought over here by the Spanish and now is used in many pueblos and other areas. But it's an, it, we have an oven here on site, actually, at the Children's Museum. So we show kids how to make those. Yeah, we can. What did we do yesterday? We baked pumpkin seeds in the Orno. But using you, so because we have a community garden on site and that feeds homeless shelters each year, we distribute about a thousand pounds of fresh produce to homeless shelters in our community. I thought the cookbook would be a perfect collaborative fundraising effort. So we're going to try to sell that at end of year as an additional sort of stocking stuffer, but it's also very community-based and mission-based. So I think that's where my, at least my uh, strategy goes and my mind is bringing it back to the programs and how we're serving the community during the pandemic, because the pandemic is still going. I know people say, I sometimes hear people like talk like we're out of it. And I'm like, no, we're still in it. So especially nonprofits. So we have to think, I think creatively and how do you really touch the hearts, the hearts of people and show them what we're doing to help the community of New Mexico. We've been serving actually the whole state these past couple of years, which has been an interesting move for us, right? Because you look at Santa Fe Children's Museum, we think we would serve just Northern New Mexico, which is Santa Fe and the surrounding areas. But we decided, let's serve the whole state. Let's serve the Pueblos and the rural areas that have no access. We live in a state that's very food insecure. Um, there's so many concerns around education. So we've been distributing complimentary grab-and-go kits, which are hands-on educational kits for families that may have no internet, they have no access to educational materials or art supplies. And so we are delivering them. For example, um, we're working with a partner, the John Hopkins American Indian Health Centers, and then they bring them to Fort Defiance and to Shiprock and to the Navajo Nation. And they drop those kits for us, but they're all complimentary and donor funded. So this is how we're getting the donors involved, I think, in different ways. That's very creative and a great way to sort of spread your mission out across the state and into areas that normally wouldn't have access to those wonderful resources. I know that you went through a, a data migration, right, where you selected a new software. And I would love to just take a couple of minutes um, to hear from you, you know, considerations that the Santa Fe Children's Museum went through as you were considering new fundraising software and what helped you make that leap of faith. Because a lot of our accidental fundraisers go through that every now and again, and um, it can be a stressful period. You know, you're trying to make a decision that could potentially last for a few years. So how did you go? about that decision? A lot of research. I think due diligence, you need to make sure. In this case, we were really lucky. We had a donor in the community who 
was sponsoring a reduced rate with, with you all in terms of being able to sign up. It was a grant. We had to, we had to, you know, apply. It was a specific grant and then they provided the services at a reduced fee. I think for anyone just starting out, your database is one of the most important things that you have because it can, you know, right now we have data migrated from the eighties because we're 37 years old. And so some of the data I've been spending a lot of time now going through that data and making sure it's accurate because when you migrate it all, it's in. And so, you know, taking that time, I would say it's a daily task though. Like your database is never something that you just walk away from and say, Oh, I'll see you in three weeks. It's daily. It's, it's, you know, you're constantly in it. Right. And so, especially in development and in events, you're only as good as your data and your, your lists. We're working on our end of year list right now. And I always feel like it's like birthing a child. <laughs> no matter what, even though the prior year, it seemed perfect. It's just a lot of work. You got to put in the work. I think people don't realize and put in the supervision, get a data person that can work on your team, even if it's part-time, two days a week, whatever that is. I think that's really useful to have focus on that project. So true. And, you know, this, a lot of people will leave it to volunteers to manage. Oh yeah. It's really tough. So I did find a volunteer here in town and he's retired and he worked at a really big technology company and he's really smart. So I literally went through, like we talked for a long time until I was comfortable. I mean, I knew right away this, he's going to be probably no more than me in some cases, he helps us pull reports because that's his forte and he helps pull data and he can, can mine data and he's just really smart. But that's like a, I would say a unicorn, like you're not going to always find that volunteer. So to your point, yeah, sometimes you're hiring that retired volunteer and they're working and they, they mean so well, but that mistakes can happen. So, you know, just, just like that. And one example is this end of your list. I, we pulled it. My membership manager merged the new data in from last year's list. Something happened and I was looking through and the address wasn't matching the states. And I, I looked at a few and I went, something happened when you did the merge. Something's weird here. And, you know, she, and this is, you know, thousands and thousands of people. So we had to start back. We went back to the drawing board. So I was like, nope, I'm throwing this one out. She's like, oh, but we already started working. I said, it doesn't matter. There's something wrong with it. And I, you know, and then I said, call the mailhouse. And also let them do a check because, you know, they have a lot more oversight and they can start to see where how many mistakes are in there with the states versus the counties. I've had staff always say, I got it. I got it. I can do this. I'm like, no, but talk to the professionals, get some help. <laughs> it's OK to ask for help. <laughs> That's one of my other. It's okay for, to ask for help and then also to have some quality control, right? To have someone, because you get so in the weeds as you're printing your list and everything that you may not see the errors. And in this case, that would have meant that you would have been sending to, you know, inaccurate addresses. They wouldn't have gone to the right places with the right names. And it would have been sort of, it would have been 
completely embarrassing to have the wrong name, you know, associated with a different address. And I find that that happens a lot where a lot of folks working in nonprofits, they're just going to run with the the task. You want to check the list, right? You want to check it off and you don't have anybody checking your work. And I'm sure that, you know, everyone does high quality work, but, but we all make mistakes and it can be really helpful to just have that check and balance in place just as another set of eyes. Yeah. Early on in my career, I was in charge of an event and I had like five people look at the invitation and we went through it with a fine tooth comb and the graphic designer made a few changes right before it went to print and it was missing the date. Oh no. <laughs> I can't kind of you. important <laughs> to have like, on there. How many times, how many people looked at it and we all just looked at each other and said, wow, how did this happen? So Yes. You, you really have to like, remember that taking, I sometimes will put something down. So let's say it's like four o'clock and I'm, I'm ready to send something out. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do that tomorrow morning. I'm going to put it back in my drafts because it's end of day. I'm tired. My eyes are not fresh. And what is, what's another several hours on this? The person it's four o'clock. They're probably not going to need it right now. So that's something else else I've told my team members is give it just a few more hours and go back to it from a fresh perspective or send it to like some fresh eyes and say, Hey, I'm really tired. Can you take a look at this? I just, I'm not done. And, you know, because I think there's always that rush, as you said, like I find sometimes when people are first starting out, like they want to make that check, right? Like I finished, I finished, I finished. And I have to say, slow down, slow down you know, and go back to it. Did you really finish? Did you really check everything? And I do find that that happens with younger team members as of late. I don't know if that's just, you know, as they say, a generational thing. I don't know what it is, but I do find it's like a wanting to get through that real fast. And I like to take it slow. I like to really try to, because I've made those mistakes. It's only because I, I always say, it's only because I've fallen down and gotten back up and learned from my own mistakes. You got to live and grow, right? You live and learn. And then you just try to put the processes in place so that it doesn't happen again. I got to say, and I mentioned this earlier, stay positive because you will never enjoy your work if you're always looking at it as work. Like, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's stressful. Yes, there's a lot. But we don't do this for the vast amounts of money. We don't do it for all the benefits. We do it because we love it. And so what comes with that love is positive, staying positive. It's not coming at it with like a Pollyanna sort of everything's great. It's just staying positive. I'm still a realist, but you know, I know I do this because I care. I truly care. I have a six-year-old. I'm watching him grow and watching how the museum and how the children's museum industry really affects kids from birth all the way up to adulthood. It's such an important, just like all the other things we do here, right? In our nonprofit careers, there's all those pieces. It all comes together. There's really amazing jigsaw puzzle. And it's why we do what we do. So true. Hannah, if our listeners want to get connected with you and learn more about the Santa Fe Children's Museum, where's the best place for them to go? They can reach out to me. I'm happy to have them email me or if they'd like some advice, that's um, hhouseman at santafechildrensmuseum.org. You can find my profile and all of our other team and information on our website, which is santafechildrensmuseum.org. 
or visit social media. You know, we've got a great profile on Instagram and Facebook. You can learn a little bit more about what we do and who we are. But we only learn, you know, from each other. And like you said, I one of my favorite quotes or sayings is Glenn and Doyle, we can do hard things. And I do think we can, you know, we, we do <laughs> every day here at Nonprofit. Now it's time for the State of the Sector, brought to you by Network for Good. Let's talk about special events. Hannah is an event pro with an incredible perspective around planning and managing special events. As your next event season approaches, you may be struggling with whether to do an in-person event or a virtual or even a hybrid event. You may also be planning an in-person event and not know how or when to make that decision to pivot to a virtual or hybrid event should there be an issue with the pandemic in your area. For many accidental fundraisers, the decision comes down to a couple of things. The COVID infection rates in your community, your organization's risk tolerance, and a bottom-line cost-benefit analysis. Your organization's reputation is on the line, so it's important to think through the safety of your guests and your staff against your opportunity to hit your goals. With your goals being things like attendance, sponsorships, engagement, that type of connection and feeling that you want to generate from the event, your overall fundraising goals, gosh, the list goes on. Over the last couple of years, we at Network for Good have partnered with Flame Strategies to dig deep and really understand the current state of events and auctions for small to medium-sized nonprofits. Swame Strategies is an events strategy and management company that's worked with hundreds of nonprofit organizations to run successful in-person, virtual, and hybrid events. Along with Network for Good's customers, Swame advised us on best practices as we built out our new events and auctions products that we launched last summer. As you think about your upcoming event, or events plural, here are a few things that Swaim recommends to manage the changing landscape. Regardless of whether you host an in-person event, consider having a live stream or virtual component. The virtual piece ensures that your story will be told and that you have the greatest opportunity to both engage your supporters and hit your fundraising goals. Then go after sponsorships. You can highlight your sponsorships regardless of whether it's an in-person or a virtual event. And if you're doing a virtual or hybrid event, there are lots of ways to offer high visibility to your sponsors. For example, you can list their logos with links to sponsor websites, both on the event registration page and even during the live stream. Be sure to conduct a risk assessment as you go. If you're doing an in-person or hybrid event, you're going to want to review your COVID protocols, understand your organization's risk tolerance, and plan for contact tracing. Think through your communication with county and health professionals and any connections to the media that might be needed should there be an issue. And then be sure to survey your expected invitees. I say it all the time. Do not assume that you know what your donors really want. Create a simple survey and then ask them about their comfort level, preferred safety protocols, and whether or not they'll actually attend. Please do not just ask your board members and event planning committee for their advice. Go broader to include individuals who may be on the fence about attending. And then start and gather small. If you feel that it is safe to meet in person, then consider the option of starting small with some house parties where people can gather to view your virtual event. You could even invite a small number of people for an in-person crowd at the recording of the live stream. So you can find ways to make it feel very inclusive and safe with these smaller crowds. 
the landscape of nonprofit events is forever changed. Now that we're a few years into the pandemic, I think all of us know deep down that it is forever changed and it forever will be. (laughs) So as you plan your next event, the coach in me is wondering what you need to do to make this event both successful and remarkable. What are the things that you can do differently to maximize your reach, your fundraising, and your impact? How can you leverage new technology to engage attendees, manage your events, and track all of that juicy donor and attendee insights or data that you collected. Sometimes these changes aren't big things. They just require letting go of the old and reframing the new. So remember, yes, yes, you can do this. To wrap up the episode, what are the three things you need to take away from this? One, don't be too hard on yourself. Remember, Failure happens, and so what we need to learn is how to fail fast and move forward. Two, take breaks. Don't forget to live your life. Burnout among nonprofit professionals is real, and our sector and your mission need you to practice safe care and balance. Three, stay true to the mission. Remember what is at your organization's core and where you really want to go. Sometimes you have to say no to say yes to your mission. And as we're saying yes, yes, you can. I'm Kimberly. See you next time on Accidental Fundraiser. And be sure to follow along wherever you get your audio.